0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Last week, those of you that were here last week, we kind of uh, zoomed right out from the Christmas story and we took this really big view of the nativity story, the advent story. We looked at that passage in John chapter 1, the prologue to John's gospel, and uh, looked at how John tells the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, against the backdrop of this huge narrative uh, that stretches right back to creation and all the way on to the new creation. And how it's so important as Christians that when we, we think about the Christmas story, that we see it in the context of that much bigger narrative, That it's part of. It's not all just about what happened on the night that Jesus was born, but there's a great big sweeping story that goes on around that, which gives sense and meaning to the story of Jesus arriving in the world. But what I want to do this morning is now we've looked at the big picture view. Now I want to zoom right in. So this morning we are gonna zoom right in around some of the details of the birth of Jesus and what happened around that time. And in particular, I want to look at these guys this morning. These three wise guys here, we're going to look a little bit at who they are and how they fit into the story and the place that they have and the meaning that they give to Christmas as a way of kind of unpacking the Christmas story. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Tim Wright is going to come and read the passage for us. Thank you, Tim.
1: Matthew 2, 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thank you, Tim.
0: All right. Well, whenever you see a nativity set, you always have these guys in it, right? So if you see a Christmas production, if you've got a nativity set at home, wherever you see the nativity scene, there's, there's three figures, something like these guys. And they're usually dressed in these kind of velvety robes here, these lovely kind of uh, flowing gowns. They're always carrying the gifts, the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, they've generally got beards. They're usually riding camels sometimes, that happens Uh, Sometimes they're wearing crowns, like this guy. Only one of the three of these guys seems to be wearing a crown, but often they're wearing crowns. And they're bowing down and worshiping Jesus. They're kind of a standard fixture in the nativity story. Uh, They go by various names, don't they? Think about who we call these guys. The most common name is the three wise men. That's kind of the standard, the three wise men. That's how we know them. That's generally how we think about them in the Christmas story. Uh, but notice they have another name. Did you catch the name Matthew used in his, in his passage? You remember what he called them? Magi. Yeah, so he uses this, this word Magi to describe these guys. So that's kind of a more technical name for who they were. And then the other title that they get given is Kings. Because, of course, there's that Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are. Bearing gifts, we travel afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain following yonder star. I had to look up what a moor was, by the way, some big grassy open area. But uh, because of that Christmas carol, we kind of think of these guys as kings as well, like there's some kind of royalty. So who are they? Are they wise men? Are they magi? Are they kings? Uh, What's going on with these guys? This is what I want to unpack a little bit with you this morning. And it's quite mysterious because only Matthew mentions these guys for a start. It's the only gospel ...where they appear. And he doesn't tell us much about them. I mean, he tells us what they do in coming to see Jesus, but he doesn't give us any of their backstory. He, in fact, he doesn't even tell us where they're from. He just says they're Magi from the East. Doesn't even tell us which country they're from. So he, it's like Matthew wants to leave a bit of mystery. He wants to create a bit of intrigue around who these guys are. So we're going to look at where they came from, who they are, what role they play in the story, and what meaning they add to the birth of Jesus. In the course of things this morning, I am going to have to bust a few myths about Christmas. So I'm sorry if some of your Christmas dreams go up in smoke this morning. It's just going to be the way it is. All right, we're just going to have to dispel a few fairy tales as we go. The first one is this. There probably weren't just three of them. I mean, have a look in Matthew 2 and see if you can find the word three. It's not there, is it? It just says magi. We think there were three because they brought three gifts. And because there's all of these traditions that have developed up around these guys, and because of the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. So we assume that there's three. Although I just heard apparently someone else has redone a a carol, We Five Kings. So who knows? There could have been five. There could have been 20. Probably not. There could have just been two. We don't know how many there were, but there's nothing to suggest there were only three. Probably a more solid place to start is with the name that they are given. So Matthew calls them Magi. And the good thing about that word is that we actually know a bit about who Magi were because they are a recognized group of people and are mentioned in various historical sources outside the Bible because there were Magi in all sorts of different countries uh, in the first century, in all sorts of different kingdoms. And in fact, they're mentioned in the Old Testament as well. When these Magi come and visit Jesus, it's not the first time that Magi have appeared in the Bible. There are numerous times in the Old Testament where magi show up. And in fact, there's one book in particular that's really helpful for understanding who the magi were, and it gives quite a bit of significance to the Christmas story. It's the book of Daniel. Some of you were here when we went through Daniel uh, last year, wasn't it? Just last year. Now, there's some interesting connections between the story of Daniel and the three wise men. Let me read you just One verse from Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember, Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament were taken as exiles from Israel to Babylon, and they served in the king's court in Babylon. And the king's name was Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had a bunch of wise men. He had a bunch of magi. Here's what is said about them in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, the key word there is the word magicians. That word magicians is the same equivalent word that is used in the New Testament to describe the Magi. In fact, Magi is just short for magicians. It's just that's where we get the word magicians, it's where we get the word magic. From the word magi. So these guys were magicians. This is the first time magicians have entertained at a child's birthday party. <laughs> the Christmas story. Magicians. But they are not the magicians that we usually think of. They not, they're not the ones that pull rabbits out of hats. They're not the ones with the long colored handkerchiefs. These are different kinds of magicians. Somewhat more sinister magicians. The kind of magicians these guys were is they were experts in two things. Dreams and Stars. It's the best way to think about the Magi. They were all about dreams and stars. So they were experts in the stars. They were astrologers. They were ancient astrologers in the sense that they would look at the cosmic phenomena. They look at the planets and stars and comets and so on. And they would kind of use these things and they would interpret these things and give meaning to these things and use them to try and understand what was happening on earth. And they would believe there was significance in all of these different alignments and movements and that would have a bearing on what was going on on earth. And they were experts in dreams and interpreting dreams. And that's what happens in here in Daniel 2. The king has this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he summons all the magi, as well as various other sorcerers and so on. And he says, tell me what my dream means. And if you're a magi, you're expected to tell the king what his dream means. Except he makes it doubly hard here because he says, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. So they had to figure out what the dream was and then what the dream meant. That's tough. And they got it wrong. Well, they couldn't do it. And so the king gets really angry, and he orders them all to be executed. It's a lot riding on your job if you're a magi. You know, like it's death if you don't do a good job for the king. Now, that's what you're expected to do. You serve at the pleasure of the king. And so you have these magi, and they serve in the royal court. They're very important people, and they serve the king. They weren't actually kings themselves. So already the Christmas carol is sounding a little bit suspicious. They weren't actually kings. They served the king. They served the king with dreams and stars by interpreting the stars and interpreting the dreams and telling the king what was going on, and that's the kind of advice they would provide to him. So they were a recognized group with a recognized role in the ancient world, and that's who these magi would have been. Now, one interesting little side note here. Daniel himself, in the Old Testament, was probably one of the Magi. Good old Daniel. You remember he's taken into the king's service and he's trained up in the ways of the Babylonians. And then he becomes an expert in what? Interpreting dreams. So he's really good at the dream side of things. And he, in fact, gets put in charge of all the wise men of Babylon. All the Magi have to bow down to Daniel. So you've got this scene in Daniel where the wise men are bowing down before a Hebrew. What does that sound like? That sounds a bit like the Christmas story, doesn't it? Wise men bowing down before an Israelite. There's all these connections between the book of Daniel and the, the Advent story. So Daniel himself probably functioned as one of the Magi in the Old Testament. That was the role that he was essentially forced into by Nebuchadnezzar. So let's come back to these guys, these travelers that came to visit Jesus. Now, what they say, if we come to Matthew 2. Matthew 2 verse 2. When they arrive, they say this, "We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him." So, don't you love the way the the way that God gets these guys attention is with a star? Like they love stars. They were all about stars. They were very familiar with stars. And so what did God use to get their attention? Could have used anything. He used a star. Isn't that great? Doesn't it speak to you of the way that God relates to us on our level? That he comes alongside us and he speaks to us in ways we can understand. And he relates to us where we are. And he speaks to us in words we can understand. That's what he's done for these guys. He said, I know what I'm going to give you so that you can understand and connect with what I'm doing. Because remember, they weren't followers of God in any sense. Not the one true God. So he gave them a star. And they recognized when they saw this star that it was significant. And that it meant the birth of a new king. Now that was a common thing. That some new star or new appearance in the sky was believed to herald the birth of a new king. Uh, And there's all kinds of theories on what this star was. If if you've got a few hours to waste over the Christmas break, you could go down a rabbit hole with this one. Just Google, what was the star the wise men saw? And the next five hours of your life are a write-off. There's just so many theories out there. Chinese astrologers and and looking at comets from 5 BC and all these speculative theories, and maybe it was a supernova, and maybe it was a comet, and maybe it was a collision of something. We don't know. The reality is we don't know. And it possibly was that God just created something that looked like a star and made it move and made it stop. Because this is the problem, of course. It's got to move and then stop and then move and then stop. Maybe God just did that. Whatever it was, God's hand was behind it. We can safely say that, right? Whatever it was, God's hand, maybe he used natural phenomena. Maybe he just did something completely supernatural. Whatever it was, this was ordained by God to get the attention of these guys and lead them to where Jesus was. Now, when they saw the star, they recognized this heralds the birth of a king. And so immediately they packed their bags and they set off. Again, this is all unfolding according to protocol. Often what would happen? is when a foreign king was born, the king of another country would dispatch some magi to go and visit that king, pay homage to the royal family, bring some gifts. It was all about building alliances. It was all geopolitics. It was all about keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. And so this was very traditional, that the magi would go and they would worship and they would visit and so on. And so this is exactly what these guys do. Now, the journey they took to get from wherever they were to Jesus was probably significant. We don't know exactly where they came from. But let's say it was Babylon. Most likely guess, Babylon. Babylon's about 800 kilometers away from Israel in terms of how those ancient countries were. So that journey, which they would have probably taken by camel or something similar, is going to take them around about three to four months to make. So here comes another little Christmas myth buster. It's very unlikely... The wise men were there on the night Jesus was born. I know, I know. You've got the nativity set at home. With the shepherds there and the wise men and everyone's huddled around for the photo and they're all there on the same night. It probably didn't happen like that. I'm sorry to tell you, the wise men, you better keep them at a different place in the house because they came much, much later. Probably three or four months down the track. I mean, Jesus might've just about been on solids by the time they came. It's, It's a long time. They came way, way down the track. The shepherds were there on the night. But the wise, if the star appeared at the time Jesus was actually born, the journey, you've got to add three or four months. So you have to sort of work out, the, work out the timeline. They probably weren't part of the original nativity gathering, but that's okay. They've still got an important part of the story, right? They're all right. Okay. So they make this journey, this arduous journey, and they come to Israel. And arriving in Israel, what they do very naturally is they first go to Jerusalem, because that's where the royal family lived. That's where the Herods lived. Herod was the king. Herod was the king of the Jews. And so you've got to put yourself in the shoes of these guys. They're thinking, well, if there's a a new king of the Jews that's been born, it's probably Herod's son, because Herod's the king. There's probably a new member of the Herod family that's been born, so we'll go rock up to the Herods and bring our gifts. And so they go and see Herod in Jerusalem. And they would have been very surprised to learn that Herod knew nothing about this king. That he was as surprised as them to learn there had been a new king of the Jews that had been born. And what's more, Herod was extremely disturbed by this news. In fact, the text says that, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Because Herod liked to think he was the king of the Jews. That was actually his role. That was actually his job title. He was the king of the Jews. And now there is apparently one born who is the true king of the Jews. And immediately Herod felt threatened. He was a very insecure man, Herod. He had already organized the assassination of several people who he perceived to be a threat to his power base, including his own mother-in-law. You think you've got problems with your mother-in-law? Herod had bigger problems with his mother-in-law. Three of his sons he assassinated because he thought they were a threat to the throne. So he was not afraid to take people out if he thought they were a threat to his power base. So immediately, you can just see, this is so true to history, what we know of Herod from outside the Bible. As soon as he hears about this new king of Jews, he immediately starts scheming a plan to do exactly what he'd done to all these other people. Take them out. And so he devises a little plan. He talks to his advisors, figures out where Jesus is going to be born. He says to the wise men, go and worship him, and then make sure you come back and tell me where he is. So I too may go and worship him. And of course, he's intending to do nothing of the kind. He wants to organize for the death of Jesus. But the wise men don't know that. And so they continue following the star from Jerusalem, and it leads them to Bethlehem. And they come to Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem, just kind of the next town over. And they come to the place where the child was in verse 9. The place where the child was. And in fact, verse 11 uses the word house to describe where Jesus was. So by this time, he certainly wasn't in an inn as such. He was in a house. Uh, It's possible that maybe he had moved accommodation since he was first born, maybe. Or it's also quite likely that Jesus was born in the basement of a house. These, these houses had dug out caves in the basement where they kept the animals, um, these sort of limestone caves, and that might have been where he was born. And then after a period of time, perhaps the family allowed them to come into the main living area of the house and gave them some room and, and let them stay there for a few months until they were all well enough and okay enough to survive the journey back to Nazareth again. Maybe that's how the story unfolded. Anyway, by this time, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are actually living in a house, still in Bethlehem, they're not home yet, They're still there, but they're in a home, so probably with another family. But they've been given some living quarters. And the wise men come to the house, and they see Jesus. And even though, I mean, they must have been very confused by all this. This is not the environment they expected. This is not a palace. There's no dignitaries. There's no pomp and ceremony. This is not Jerusalem. It's nothing to do with the king. And yet they see Jesus, and they know this is the one. They recognize him straight away this is the king and they bow down and they worship him I want to just step back from that moment for a minute in the biblical story and just think about what's happening there's some threads of the whole biblical story that are coming together here there's some prophecies from the old testament that are coming to fulfillment right in this moment where the wise men are bowing down and worshiping Jesus all the way back to the prophet isaiah In the Old Testament. In Isaiah 60 is this prophecy. Isaiah says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. You have these prophecies here that dignitaries from foreign lands bearing gold and incense are going to come and worship the one true God. And this is is the intention of God. All through the biblical story, His intention was always that people from all nations would come and worship Him. That yes, He had His chosen people, Israel. And yes, He was working with them and journeying with them. But God's intention was always that through Israel, His blessing would flow to all people would flow out to all nations. God's intention was always that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group under heaven would come and worship Him and recognize Him as the one true God and praise Him and encounter His presence. That was always God's desire. That was His promise right from the very beginning. And here you have These wise men, these magi from a foreign kingdom far away coming to worship the one true king. God could have chosen anyone to come and pay homage to Jesus at this point. He could have chosen Jewish priests and rabbis or scribes or Pharisees or whoever he'd wanted to, but he chose these guys. He chose these people from 800 kilometers away, part of a foreign kingdom who had no knowledge of God, were not worshipers of God, at all, probably worshipers of some other pagan gods. And he chose them to come and worship the king of kings. And by doing that, God is saying, this king is for everyone. He's for everyone, near or far. He is for every single person. And every single person under heaven is invited to come and worship him. It doesn't matter how far you think you are from God today. You're no further than these guys were. You're no further than the wise men were. And God invites every person, whether you already think you're an insider or you think you're a rank outsider, God invites all people everywhere to come and bow down with these wise men and worship the one true King of kings. They would have been considered outsiders in every single sense, and yet they were invited to come, and so are you. And so let's just finish then by looking At the gifts that they brought, because these gifts tell their own story. There's significance to these three gifts that the wise men laid at the feet of Jesus. Verse 11 Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Tim said as he read that passage this morning, he was really trying not to say Frankenstein. Really trying not to say that. And you did a good job, Tim. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, each of those gifts is significant. Gold is the gift for a king, and it symbolizes royalty. It represents the fact that Jesus is the true king of kings. Just another one quick little uh, sidelight again back to the book of Daniel. You remember the story of Daniel. When Daniel and his friends were taken into exile, along with them, the Babylonians stole a whole lot of treasure from Israel, including these gold goblets. These goblets of gold, they stole them from Israel and took them with the exiles all the way to Babylon and they used them for their own feasts and their own parties. And I love the way now that you've got these Magi, possibly from Babylon, coming all the way back to Israel with gold. And I I love the thought, and it's only a thought, that maybe one of these wise men pulled out of his sack a goblet of gold. Maybe one of those same goblets that was taken from the Israelite temple years ago, bringing it back for the one true king of kings. Did it really happen like that? I don't know. But we know that it was gold, and we know that gold represents the gift for a king. And it it speaks to us of the kingship of Jesus, that he is the one true king of kings. Now, the gift of frankincense... Frankincense is is like a gum. It's like a tree resin, and it's used to make a particular kind of incense. And that incense is used in the Old Testament in the context of sacrifices, sacrifices that were made by priests, that often when sacrifices were made, they would mix in this frankincense with the the meat, the, the sacrifice. And then when the sacrifice was offered, this pleasing aroma of the frankincense spice would go up and it would be pleasing to the Lord. And so the idea of frankincense is very connected to the role of a priest offering a sacrifice. And so it speaks to us of Jesus as our true priest, the great high priest, who comes not with the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but with the sacrifice of his own blood that is shed for us so that he mediates between us and God. He brings us to God and he brings God to us. He is our true high priest. Frankincense represents that. And then myrrh. And myrrh had a particular role too. Myrrh was a burial spice. And it was used to embalm the bodies of the dead. In fact, in the Gospels, when Jesus dies, it's specifically mentioned that those who embalmed his body used myrrh as one of the perfumes to embalm the body. Isn't it interesting that at the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus, he he receives myrrh on both occasions. And myrrh points us forward then to the fact that Jesus is going to die. It points us forward to the cross for to Jesus' death on our behalf, as the Savior of the world, taking our sin upon Himself and dying in our place, which ultimately is the reason that He came to seek and save the lost and provide forgiveness of sins, and so the myrrh points to Jesus as our Savior. So you have these three gifts: gold, frankincense, myrrh, and each of them shed light on who Jesus is. He is the King. He is the Priest. He is the Savior. King of kings, great high priest, saviour of the world. Each of them speak to us about the person and the work of Jesus. Of course, the wise men didn't know that. They couldn't have known that. And Mary and Joseph wouldn't have known that. A lot of this would have passed them by. But we have the fullness of the biblical story. We can look back now. We can see the connections. We can put it together. And we see the way that these three gifts tell the story of the gospel. They tell the story of Jesus and they shed light on the person and the work of Christ. And so really for us then, in the end, there's, there's no other appropriate response, is there, but to do exactly what these guys did, to bow down and worship Jesus. That's, that's what they did. They recognized who he was, even though they'd come from afar. They bowed down and they worshiped him. And when we can look into the face of Jesus and we can see him as the king of kings, And we can see him as the great high priest who gave his life as our sacrifice. And when we see him as the one who has died to be our savior and forgive our sins, then what is left for us to do but to fall down and worship him? And God calls us to bring a gift of our own, not the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the gift of our life the gift of our hearts opened wide and laid down before God. That's what he asks from each of us, that we would bring ourselves to him, that we would bring our lives unreservedly to him, to worship him and offer ourselves to him for his service and for his glory. So let me finish with the last verse of the old Christmas carol in the bleak midwinter. What can I give him, poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet, what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. Father God, we do that this morning as your people, as your church, as your children. We come to you and we kneel down with these magi of old. And with them this morning, even though we're separated from them by a couple of thousand years. We do this morning just what they did. We bow down before you. We bow our lives. We bow our hearts. And we simply worship you. We recognize you, Jesus, as the King of Kings. We recognize you and we praise you as our great high priest. We recognize you. We thank you that you are the Savior of the world. And we thank you, Jesus, that no matter who we are, And no matter how far we feel like we are from you now, that you invite us to come to you. Just as you invited the Magi, you invite each of us to come to you now. Lord, help us to respond to that invitation with open arms, with open hearts, with open lives. Come freely and worship you. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.